welcome to City Breaks Bath, Episode 2, Roman Bath. The Roman period being one of the two great heydays of the lovely city of Bath. The other one, of course, being the Georgian period. Jane Austen and whatnot. But today, early on in the series, we're starting at the beginning with the era when the Romans, who ruled so many places in Europe, made Bath really one of the centres, one of the places they liked to come to, liked to stay in making the most of the abundant hot water gushing out of the thermal springs, using their engineering skills to make the most of it, and generally settling down for several hundred years. All of which means that if you're interested in the Romans, Bath really is one of the places in Britain to visit. It's said, in fact, to be the centre of the largest concentration of Roman villas anywhere in Britain. You can't visit them all, of course, it's just known where they are, but there are believed to be over 30 within a 20-kilometre radius of the city. But better still, from the point of view of visiting for the day, what there is to see is really very well preserved. Certainly the best-preserved ancient baths here in Britain, possibly actually anywhere in northern Europe. So all of that means there's lots to see when you go. And if there's one recommendation I want to make in this episode, it really is, do go, have a look round both the baths and the museum, where you can learn so much about the Romans. Because they're well preserved, there's enough left for you to really be able to picture what they must have looked like in the days when they were used. You can see the baths with the steps leading down to them, and imagine the toga-clad Romans who sat there, steaming and soaking, 2,000 years ago. So the plan for the episode then is to have a look at what is actually there to visit, and to look a little bit at the life of the Romans who lived there. And firstly, just to recap on something said in the introduction, why actually were the Romans here at all? Several reasons, of which one is by far the most significant. So, to start with, Bath is sighted handily on a place where two major Roman roads more or less cross. So that's the Foss Way that they built from Exeter diagonally across the country up to Lincoln, and the road coming out west from London. Of course, they were going to choose a spot on a river, and this one, as a clincher, was surrounded by seven hills, so just like Rome, home from home, if you will. So all of those are minor reasons. Much more importantly, they had heard from the tribes settled here at the time, the Celtic tribes, about the hot water gushing out of the springs, its healing properties. And when they investigated, they realised that actually so much hot water gushes out of these springs that they would have to actually devise a way of siphoning off the excess and still have enough left to bathe in to their heart's content. So for all those reasons, this was the spot. There's a very handy description of exactly how all this works geographically in a book called Discovering Bath by Paul Snowden. And this is his explanation of the origins of the hot water in Bath. Quote, The water you see gushing from Bath's hot springs fell as rain on the Mendip Hills some 10,000 years ago. Mendip limestone is soluble, so the water seeps underground through fissures and channels, gradually collecting dissolved minerals as it goes. Unable to rise through the impervious clays above, the water flows down to a depth of up to three miles, where it reaches an amazing 96 degrees centigrade, until it finds a large fault line right underneath Bath, through which it escapes. Its emergent temperature is a constant 45 degrees centigrade and has been so since records began in 1754 
and its flow rate is 13 litres per second. So to summarise then, lovely hot water, on tap, forever. Definitely a place to settle then, thought the Romans, who arrived in Britain in AD 43, and we think that the baths here were completed at round about AD 75. At which point the Romans did something really rather tactful. So they knew that the tribes already settled here had a goddess called Sul, S-U-L, to whom they dedicated the waters. They thought of this goddess as being roughly the equivalent of their own goddess, Minerva, the goddess of health and wisdom. But I think they decided it would be a smart move not to just banish the first goddess completely, and so they called the place where they had settled Aquae Sulis, the waters of Sul, so still dedicated to the Celtic goddess. And so it was that the baths, which were going to become such a central feature of the city, were finished. I read one example of this pivotal role when I found out that one emperor had been asked by a barbarian chieftain why he bathed every day, and the emperor apparently replied, well, that was because he was too busy to bathe twice a day. So the idea that a bath or a visit to the baths every single day was important had been well and truly stated. So let's look at what they actually built. Okay, so in about AD 60, they began the project, driving wooden piles all around the main spring, digging a trench, and then in that, building a wall of stone blocks. They built a lead-lined bath, which would be big enough for about 20 people, and alongside it, they built a temple. Eventually, there were several baths, the biggest of which is known as the Great Bath, and here's a description of it from the Roman Bath Guidebook. The Great Bath was the largest of these pools and the heart of the bathing establishment. This elegant hall consisted of a rectangular swimming bath surrounded by broad walkways paved with hard white lyre slabs. Six alcoves were set into the outer walls of the chamber to provide space for people to sit and relax away from the splashing of other bathers. The great bath was always roofed, initially with timber, but later with a heavy brick and tile vault, supported by massive stone piers. A high-level tier of windows admitted light and gave the hall a tall, basilica-like appearance. The pool itself was flat-bottomed, 1.5 metres deep, with steep steps down to it on all sides. In fact, when you visit the Great Bath today, you'll notice it is open to the sky, the roof having disappeared. And the other thing you'll probably notice straight away is the Roman statues all the way round the edge, erected, in fact, in 1894. So when you're having a look at the complex, it's worth remembering the bath does date truly from Roman times, the statues not so much. They're impressive, though. There are three Roman generals, five emperors, all the emperors who had connections with Britain, so Claudius and Julius Caesar, Hadrian of Hadrian's Wall fame, Constantine the Great and Vespasian. You need to remember when you're looking at what's there that this wasn't all built in one go. Rome wasn't built in a day. The Roman baths weren't built in one year. The Romans were here for over 300 years. And so what you're looking at dates from various different eras. As a general description, though, the complex consisted of various bathhouses, of a paved courtyard, a furnace, complete with underfloor heating system. And one key thing to remember is that you're looking very much, obviously, just at the remains, and the original would have been much more highly decorated 
and beautifully coloured. Mosaic flooring, for example. There are bits of that left, and you can see those in the museum, so that helps you imagine that in situ. But you need to also think that the walls were plastered and painted, probably in fairly bright colours. It's thought that they favoured simple geometric patterns. There were windows with iron frames, and it's thought actually glazed. But it certainly wasn't all about the decoration. There was a lot of clever engineering going on behind the scenes. Here's the guidebook on that. Quote, Lead piping and bronze sluices ensured the supply of hot water and steam to the different bathing facilities, while brick stokeries, underfloor supports, flues and chimneys allowed hot air from furnaces to circulate beneath the treatment rooms. Copper boilers would ensure hot water, even in those parts of the baths that were at some distance from the hot spring. Clever stuff, and all of this before the period that we know as the Dark Ages in British history. I mentioned the temple being part of the complex, a little aside from the bath, an inner sanctum surrounded by four Corinthian columns that only the priests would be allowed inside. But again, very much a building that changed over the years. So here's a description from AD 300, when one of the many reorganisations of the temple was taking place. It comes from A Traveller's History of Bath, by Richard and Sheila Thames. Quote, A new retaining wall was built, and two flanking chapels erected to complement the temple. The open spring was enclosed in a hall with a vaulted masonry roof, and the baths themselves re-roofed in masonry. Two buildings were put up in the temple precinct, facing each other. The southern one featured on its façade Sol, god of the sun, the south and daytime. The northern one, Luna, goddess of the moon, the north and night. We know too that on the temple, right on top there was a pediment, which we still have, you can see it in the museum, and it was dominated by the carved stone of a gorgon's head. Inside there would have been a statue of the goddess Sulis Minerva, kept in the gloom but lit by flames. Really very much the heart of the temple, the inner sanctuary. We know that there was a temple on this site for about four centuries, even though England was becoming a Christian country. But finally, in 391, it was closed, as were all pagan places of worship, under the orders of the Roman Emperor Theodosius. So much then for what the building actually looked like. Let's think a little bit about what the people inside it were doing. What was a day at the baths actually like, or a visit to the baths? Well, it probably started with some vigorous exercise before you went along, and then you'd probably head first for the room called the Apoditerium, which is really a changing room by another name. So then maybe a swim, and then perhaps in order to get ready for being very, very hot, you would sit first in the bath known as the tepidarium, tepid in temperature, before progressing to the heavy stuff, the caldarium, where the water was much, much hotter. Think of that syllable, C-A-L-D, as coming from scalding rather than from having anything to do with cold. So the main activity here would be sitting in the very hot water, but in fact that wasn't all that was going on. Here's the guidebook. Here they could demonstrate their social status by the number of their attendants and the fragrance and quality of the oils with which they were massaged. So yes, you definitely were soaking in the very hot and hopefully health-giving water, but you were also being massaged, being rubbed with treatments. 
and once all of that was finished, it would be off for a quick plunge into the frigidarium. You can guess that the temperature there is much lower. So that would be where you could rinse off and have your pores closed. Other possibilities would include a visit to the Laconicum, where the heat was dry, a bit like a sauna today. Also a place for treatments, maybe more massage, perhaps the attentions of a hairdresser or maybe a hair plucker. Body hair wasn't really acceptable to the Romans, so they did excruciating things like having their armpits plucked. And the whole thing really had a dual function. Partly it was seen as a cleansing and a cure, and partly it was just part of the day's entertainment. Because the clientele thought that the hot water was provided by the goddess Sulis Minerva from the sacred spring, they felt that immersing themselves in it would be a healthy thing to do. The water was believed to have health-giving, perhaps even life-giving properties. And actually, the plentiful supply of very hot water here is the reason why you see swimming pools rather than just small pools that one or two people could sit in. Something that really wasn't to be found in most of the other baths around the country, because there it would have cost a lot to heat the water, whereas in Bath, it was free. And so you could sink right into it and know that it would be hot for as long as you wanted to stay. So that's one of the functions, the cure, the health-giving element. But the other function definitely was the whole place was somewhere where you could go for entertainment and socialising. You weren't just going to bathe, you were going to relax, do a bit of networking maybe, a bit of gossiping, maybe eat something. And I found some nice descriptions of exactly that. Here, for example, is an extract from Stories of Bath, written by Diana White, in which she talks about what else there was to do in the baths other than just soak. Quote, Refreshments were always available. Traders would go round with trays of fruit snacks and drinks, and there might well be some acrobatic entertainment. However, the baths were much more than a relaxing or cleansing ritual. Social interaction or networking was high on the agenda. Meeting friends and colleagues to discuss the affairs of the day, make useful contacts and improve your business opportunities. All part of the reasons for being there. Aquasulis might only be an outpost of the empire, but it was a good career move and a significant stepping stone to power. Military success was essential for promotion and the road to the Roman Senate. And here from the Bath's own guidebook, a second description of the ways in which a visit to the Bath could be entertaining. Quote, Sitting in the alcoves, away from splashes from the pool, people would meet with clients to discuss business and debate the issues of the day, listen to the discourses of philosophers, play board games, gamble and eat and drink. They would have entertainers like jugglers and musicians present, manicurists and even armpit pluckers, as well as hosts of servants and slaves running about attending to their masters. Bathing was a noisy, lively pastime, essential to an agreeable life. But the baths themselves weren't the only place in the city where you could hope for some entertainment. We know, for example, that Roman Bath had a theatre. The theatre itself has never been found. It's quite a tantalising thought to think that there are probably remains of it down there somewhere, under something which now can't be moved. I don't know, the Abbey perhaps. But there has been writing found suggesting that people went to see plays or to watch wrestling or circus acts. We know too that there were plenty of wine and ale houses and there were brothels. So really not actually all that different from a modern city. 
thinking about who was actually using the bath at any one time. There's been quite a discussion about what was there or wasn't there mixed bathing. And it seems that historians have decided that varied and that different approaches were taken to that in different eras. It's thought very much that in some times different areas of the baths would be used, so there'd be a men's area and a women's. It's thought that there were periods of time when the system was more that perhaps women would come earlier on in the day, the men being busy, and that after the business of the day had been conducted, the men would come later on. We do know that the Emperor Hadrian banned mixed bathing, so that tells us that it certainly was allowed, at least at certain periods. And when it comes to the lives of the men and the women generally, it becomes clear that there were really quite major differences. Men were definitely head of the household. They did all the important business and politics and whatnot, and the women bore the domestic burdens. So they were probably running the household, going to market, educating the children, possibly doing a bit of hostessing if they had a husband whose career needed to be advanced. And there's lots of evidence that they were very much subject to their husbands. Something explained by Diana White in her book, Stories of Bath. Quote, Social restrictions were many and varied, making daily life fraught with unseen dangers for the unwary. Indiscretions, committed quite inadvertently by lonely wives, resulted in brutal and summary punishment from husbands who had the power of life and death over them. Drinking wine, for example, was an offence punishable by death, and a kiss could spell instant dispatch for the wife whose lips tasted of the forbidden liquid. A visit to the games without permission, or walking out with her head uncovered, could result in divorce, as could an innocent chat in the street. One poor woman was divorced by her husband because he had spotted her talking with a common freed woman. So if your husband was a powerful man, he certainly had power over you. It did seem to be the case that with the lower class women, perhaps they might, ironically, have a little bit more freedom. Perhaps they worked alongside their husbands. Maybe they ran a trade or a market stall. Perhaps they kept an inn together. And we don't really know, but we can imagine that perhaps they had a little bit more equality, at least within their own households. But then there's a category of person we haven't mentioned yet, and that is the slaves. Slaves were not Roman citizens, didn't have any of the say or privileges that went along with that, but they were rather bound to their master or mistress for life unless they were freed. So some people were born into slavery, others became slaves perhaps because they'd been taken captive in war, or maybe they were sentenced to be slaves as a punishment. However it came about, we know that slaves worked hard, were poorly fed, probably slept in shackles, for fear that otherwise they would try and escape. For most slaves there would be no escape, although it did sometimes happen that if their master converted to Christianity, he would grant them their freedom. And sometimes slave owners gave their slaves the opportunity to work for their freedom, so to commit so many years to them, and then at the end of that, to be allowed to go. In the museum attached to the Roman baths, you can see many findings which have been dug up on the site, and get a real sense from them of many aspects of the lives that the people who lived here led. I think for me, the most striking thing I saw, probably the highlight of the museum really, is the gilt bronze head of Sulis Minerva, the goddess. It sits in a glass case, subtly lit up in the rather dark surroundings, a little bit as described in the temple in fact, 
And really, it's such a beautiful object, and to look at it and think that it's 2,000 years old and was an object worshipped by the Romans who lived here is really very inspiring. So ancient though it is, it was in fact not found until 1727. It was dug up in one of the nearby streets. Unfortunately, they didn't find the body, or perhaps I should say, up till now, no body has been found. Presumably it is down there somewhere. But anyway, I think it's probably the most memorable thing in the museum. But there are lots of other things to look at. Memorial stones, for example, where the writing, if translated, gives you an idea of some of the people who were living in this community. So one, for example, is inscribed to one L. Marcius Memor and records that his status was that of soothsayer, or haruspex, as the Latin puts it. So just that one tablet gives an insight into a whole way of thinking in Roman times where you could go to a soothsayer, pay them, and ask them to foretell your future, to make predictions perhaps in a bid to have some control over your future. Many, many coins have been found, I think about 12,000 to date, so they remind us of all the trading and business and marketing that would have gone on, making you think that perhaps things weren't all that different from life today. But just as you're thinking that, you might come across in the museum something else that really tells you that's not quite right. I'm thinking of a set of exhibits which were among my favourites, really, and those are other written messages, often curses, written in Latin on thin sheets of copper or lead, which we know that the Romans used to throw into the sacred spring. The writers were usually people against whom a crime of some sort had been committed, and this was their way of trying to get justice. So they would write down, or perhaps have a scribe write down for them, what had happened to them, and then they would invoke a deity to punish the wrongdoer, and then presumably sit back and wait for justice to be meted out. It's quite nicely explained in the guidebook, where it says the following, Usually, the person placing the curse did not know exactly who the culprit was, but was able to provide a list of suspects. If the wrongdoer were named, the goddess would know and could act. The threat of divine wrath would be a powerful deterrent. And there are some lovely examples to look at. So, for example one written by a victim who'd had an item of clothing stolen and who had written, or perhaps wrote himself, the following wish that the thief should have, quote, maximum death and not be allowed sleep or children now or in the future until he has brought back my hooded cloak to the temple of divinity. And there's a second one regarding the theft of a pair of gloves where the writer wishes fervently that the victim should go mad and go blind. So, of course, what you want to know then, which I'm afraid I can't tell you, is did it work? Was the coat stealer denied offspring? Did the person who'd gained a pair of gloves lose their sight? Lost, I'm afraid, in the mists of time. But again, the guidebook's quite interesting on some of the practices which went on, which we today would find strange. Quote, the temple precinct must have been thronged with hangers-on, scribes writing the curses, sellers of religious trinkets and an oculist whose stamp was found in the Abbey churchyard in 1731, selling his concoctions to cure eye complaints. And the writer can't resist going on to explain with a dose of cynicism that there's always going to be the suspicion that some of these people were just trying to make a fast buck. So he or she writes, wherever there are people hoping to be cured, 
there are the unscrupulous who will prey on their frailty. Another custom which we know about, partly because of the things that have been found in the ruins, is that of making offerings to the goddess or leaving gifts for her. Thousands of items have been recovered. Coins, items of jewellery, little dishes made of pewter or silver, many of which were left in the spring, which of course was dedicated to Sulis Minerva. We know too that there were rituals and religious observances held at the sacrificial altar, which was on the paved area just outside the temple. So there was one great altar in the middle, where animals would be sacrificed, and then smaller altars, often set up by individuals who wanted to thank the gods for something, or make a divine request. And, as it says in the guidebook, quote, these stones were always inscribed with the names of the donors. Decked with flowers or supporting containers of smouldering incense, they would have added a vivid dimension to the sanctuary. So, piecing all those things together, you begin to get a picture of the life that was lived here. Lived, in fact, for nearly four centuries, which begs the question, what happened then? How did it come to an end? Well, in the 4th century, there were repeated raids by barbarians, whom textbooks tell us came from northern Europe in some cases, or from Ireland. So these people arrived, attacked the villas, burnt them, not really in one sudden event, but more over a period of time, until gradually Roman Bath declined, lots of Romans fled, or just decided to move on, go home perhaps, or to another part of the empire, and gradually, gradually then, Aquaesulis fell into ruins. And that was the beginning of the period known as the Dark Ages. So all those wonderful things that the Romans left behind fell into disuse. A proportion of them have been discovered. A lot more, we imagine, are still lying under the streets of Bath. Secret mementos from an era that lasted so long and had such an impact, but, like everything else, couldn't last forever. So that was the end of one of the two great periods of history that influenced Bath. The second one, of course, being its Georgian heyday in the 18th century. I'm not, however, proposing to move straight on to that in the next episode, because there are interesting things to be said about the medieval period, not least the building of the Abbey, the society which collected around it, the development of Bath as a trading centre based on wool and cloth. And so I'd like to talk about all of those things in next week's episode, which I'm going to call In and Around the Abbey. We're leaving the Romans behind, but there's plenty more to talk about. And I hope that you'll be able to join me next week to make a start on that. For the moment then, just thank you very much for listening. And I did in fact look up one Latin word with which to end the programme, valle which I believe means goodbye. I hope so, anyway. Goodbye. Goodbye.